It's show 133 of the Rim Pro Report. Today, the one, the only, Richard Reese. The show is sponsored by our good friends at O'Neill Software. It's show season. Nade is just completed. AIM is finished. And the PRISM conference is upcoming in May. But hovering just over the horizon in September is the O'Neill Partner Conference. And officially, you can now register for it. The conference will be held September 18th to 20th in Huntington Beach, California. And along with cutting-edge training, O'Neill has the largest and coolest fundraising event in the entire industry. If you want to learn more about the conference, you can do so at O'NeillSoft.com. This, as they say, is going to be a really, really, really ridiculously good show. Welcome to the Rim Pro Report. The one and only weekly broadcast for the Rim support services industry. Bustling with news, views, and the latest updates. This show is full of interesting information. So take notes. Now here's your host, Tom Adams. Yep, it's me and we're back. Welcome to the show. I'm glad you're here. This is a show we've been planning for months now. Today, we've got the incredible honor of talking to Richard Reese, the former president, CEO, and chairman of the board of Iron Mountain. Richard just retired a couple of days ago, actually a little bit earlier this month, and earlier this week, I had a chance to interview him. The interview lasted more than an hour, so we're actually going to split the interview up over two weeks. I got to say, it was an incredible honor to spend the time with him, to learn his story, to learn about his perspective of what happened at Iron Mountain over the years, and also what he thinks about the industry. Richard has left an indelible imprint on this industry, and I wanted to honor him on the show for the next few weeks at this the point of retirement but before we dive into that interview let's get quickly caught up on the most recent industry news restore plc of uh, the uk announced the acquisition of file and data storage a uk-based records and information management services company it looks to like it's about a 6.1 million pound deal so congratulations to the buyer and seller Archive Systems announced an expansion of their business into Baltimore, Boston, Chicago, and Baltimore. This brings their total metropolitan market served to 11. So congratulations to Andy Cavell and the team at Archive Systems on this expansion. In the Richard Reese transition at Iron Mountain, Al Varecchia was just introduced this week as chairman of the board. Al has been a board member since 2010 and chairman-elect since late last year when Richard formally announced his retirement. Al is also the chairman of the board at Hasbro, the toy and entertainment company. K2 Partners announced last week that Mike, uh, Mike Bowringer is joining the company as a director. Mike built and sold his Ohio-based shredding solutions company. He then founded Easy Shred, the popular shred industry software. He was also part of 3GS, the shred industry roll-up that was eventually sold to Cintas. So congratulations to Mike on his new role at K2 Partners. Finally, Nade wrapped up their annual conference in Nashville last weekend. Thanks to the staff at Nade for all their hard work the vendors and sponsors for making this year's event extremely valuable to all who attended i hope you learned a lot and met people who can help you or gained some new traction for your business it was great to see so many of you and catch up uh, and hear where you are and how things are going well that's all the news i have for this week if you have news you want to share drop me a line and let me know 
Now, before I queue up my interview with Richard Reese, here are a few messages for Richard from a number of different people who have been in some way influenced by him. And I'm just going to let them speak here on their own. Thanks, Tom, for the opportunity to say some uh, some words honoring Richard Reese. Uh, when I became executive director of Prism International, Iron Mountain and Pierce Leahy were just concluding their merger. And one of the first people to reach out to welcome me to the industry was Richard Reese. Uh, and we've had a great relationship ever since. Uh, Richard uh, is unusual among CEOs I've met in that he invested Iron Mountain resources for long-term improvements in the industry as a whole rather than just benefiting the company. Um, his personal leadership and commitment of resources have been instrumental in a number of industry victories with the National Archives and Records Administration, which took almost a decade, and uh, numerous pitch battles with the National Fire Protection Association. Uh, and the whole industry enjoys a friendlier and more profitable environment because of decisions Richard made and because of his dedication to the industry. He, he never forgot the industry's roots. Uh, Iron Mountain provided more leaders in terms of presidents of ACRC and PRISM International than any other company. Jack Goldman was one of the founders. Richard himself was president of ACRC. Mike Holland and Neil Goldman uh, both served as presidents, and each one of them uh, committed Iron Mountain resources to special projects and ongoing operations throughout their periods of involvement. But more than that, Richard maintained a deep personal interest in the individuals who helped create and grow the industry. I remember when Jerry Leonard passed away, one of ACRC's founding members. It was Richard Reese who provided a very fitting tribute during the PRISM annual business meeting. Richard is also, has been, and continues to be generous with information. Following uh, Iron Mountain's fires in New Jersey and London, uh, he provided special experts like Larry Varn and Ward Como to brief the industry on lessons learned from those fires. And he personally uh, has been willing to share his very deep knowledge of the industry whenever he was asked to speak at PRISM events, and nobody packs a room like Richard Reese. You know, everybody's hanging on every word he says. The commercial information management industry couldn't wish for a more capable leader, stronger supporter, or more committed partner, or a better friend than Richard Reese. So, Richard, congratulations to you on an extraordinary career. Hope you stay in touch. Thanks. Hi, Richard. It's Harry Bacowson calling. Just wanted to take this opportunity personally to thank you once again for all your contributions, not just to Iron Mountain, but to our industry as a whole. You certainly have been a great leader to work for and with, and you certainly have provided tremendous leadership to our industry. So I wish you all the best, and congratulations on your retirement, and take care. Mr. Reese, this is Jim Teske. You and I have known each other for, shoot, about 18 years now, uh, back from my days with O'Neill Software, and you have always been professional, courteous, you know, open to my questions about uh, your perceptions of our industry. Uh, I'd have to say that several highlights for me in our relationship both occurred last year in 2012, uh, the first of which uh, when I had the honor of presenting you with the Lifetime Achievement Award on behalf of PRISM International. That was a, a true pleasure and an honor on my part. And the second is when we shared dinner with you uh, and you were seated next to my wife in Belgium at the European Conference, and we talked about diabetes and its impact on my stepdaughter. Thanks again for your counsel and advice over the years and for the many contributions you made to records and information management through uh, your leadership at Iron Mountain for so many decades. Uh, I wish you only the very best in the future and hopefully um, some well-earned relaxation in your coming retirement. Very best regards. Take care. Hi, Richard. This is Lori Palmer. 
And on behalf of Rev Storage Systems International, we want to thank you for the incredible impact you have left on this industry. Thank you, and go have some fun. Hey, Richard. Steve Richards down in Nashville at Richards & Richards. Uh, what a remarkable, what a remarkable life you've been able to live. And uh, I only hope that I'm going to be able to have about half as much of a cool landing as you've had at Iron Mountain. You know, I still remember the very first time I saw you. It was in the Vegas uh, meeting, and I think you guys had just acquired uh, Beacons. And uh, that was the very first time I ever had an idea of who Iron Mountain was and who, uh, uh, who you were in terms of what you had accomplished and what you had been able to do in the industry. And every time you got up there to speak at one of those conferences, there was everybody was in the room because they wanted to hear what you had to say. You've made an amazing contribution, Richard, and I am appreciative of it. More so, I think I'm more appreciative of that phone call you gave me three days after my fire. Uh, you gave me three things that you said were going to happen. I thought they weren't. They did, and it was extremely helpful. I will always be grateful. And remember that phone call because you were one of the ones that helped me get my uh, road uh, straightened out after that fire. Good luck to you. Blessings to you. And I wish you a great retirement. Take care. Wow, some great reminders of Richard's influence on people and this industry. Thanks, Jim and Harry and Jim and Lori and Steve for your messages to Richard. We'll have more messages on next week's show. But now it's time for Richard Reese. Hang on while I queue up the interview. It is my extreme honor and privilege to welcome Mr. Richard Reese to the RIM Pro Report. Richard has just officially retired from his role at Iron Mountain and has graciously joined us on the show today to share his story, the Iron Mountain story, and his perspectives on this RIM industry. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. I'm happy to be here. Oh, it's it's a real pleasure. Well, I, I want to get right into this because there's a whole lot to talk about. Uh, so let's start with your personal story. Well, we may know you from the Iron Mountain context. Can you tell me a little bit about your life before you got to Iron Mountain from your early days in Union, South Carolina through your time at Harvard? I know there's a lot of story in there, but give me a sense of what your life was before you ever hit Iron Mountain. Well, sure, but this it unfortunately could take a while, so I'll try to just hit the high spots. So right. I was born and raised in Union, South Carolina. That's a very small town and uh, in the Piedmont area, I went to high school there and left and went to Clemson University. Uh, thought that I would be an engineer, but went in thinking I'd be an electrical engineer and got there and changed to being a ceramic engineer. Uh, stayed around, I got a master's degree, had various summer and in intermediate kind of jobs uh, in textile mills and things like Oak Ridge National Laboratory working on nuclear fuel. Wow. And as, as was those era, actually, I graduated from Clemson, got my master's in 1969. If you remember history, that was the Vietnam era. Yeah. And uh, I went through ROTC and came out of uh, Clemson and had to do my two years in the U.S. Army. And frankly, you know, uh, I'm a real believer in luck and a real believer in, in different people at different points in time kind of help change your life. 
And I, and one of those changed line up going off the army, and I had made friends with a, a guy who had uh, gone to graduate school with me, and he had just come back out of the army, and we'd become friends. And as I left, he handed me a catalog to Harvard Business School, and he said, uh, "You know, when you get out of the army, you need to go there." Well, the truth is, I'm not sure I'd ever heard of Harvard Business School. Wow. Uh, growing up in the South at that stage, but it was somebody I'd got to know. He's three or four years older than me, and uh, he and his wife both had become good friends. And, you know, somebody I le- learned a lot of things from, and that was sort of the beginning of somebody sort of giving me good advice that eventually I paid attention to. Yeah. But I left uh, Clemson and went off in the U.S. Army and did uh, what was supposed to be two years, but turned out to be less because Vietnam was slowing down and I was on the way to Vietnam, and as the army uh, has their way of doing it, they detoured me to Germany. Hmm. And once I and they told me it would only be temporarily for a few months, but once I got there, they left me, uh, which I didn't complain about, and had a great time. and And that was another just great opportunity because once they've seen Paris, you can't get them back on the farm. Well, that's a little bit of my experience. Once I left South Carolina and I lived in Germany, I've traveled all over Europe for oh, a better part of a year and a half or so. Uh, there was no going back to Union, South Carolina, for sure, which was a very small town with no real opportunities. But there was really just no going back at all. It was just look forward and see what else in life you could find to do with greater horizons. And, in fact, I did apply to Harvard Business School and got accepted and went there. And again, uh, thinking I was going to come out of Harvard Business School as an engineer, but an engineering manager, I went. And when I went there, I learned the lesson of what they call other people's money. Uh, or the use of the use of leverage and yeah. uh, the use of an opportunity and a little bit about entrepreneurship and so I came out of Harvard Business School not to be an engineer but came out went back to South Carolina and uh, went to work with a, uh, a privately owned company in the timber and the real estate business and perfect timing that was 1974 and if you know business history you know that was the height of the real estate one of the real estate bubbles and the market significantly collapsed. But I spent about a year and a half, two years there, and realized that the next big lesson of life is if you work for a family-owned company and you're not part of the family, that's not a good idea. <laughs> and no matter what, blood is always thicker than water, and, yeah. and it should be. But from an opportunity perspective, I, I moved on and moved to Florida for a while and worked for a small public company that was about as poorly managed as you could ever see. And I learned a lot there in a very short period of time. And Met another gentleman, worked for him for a while. He was brought in to help clean it up, and uh, he, he got frustrated, and I left, he left. In fact, the third gentleman that we all worked together left after a while because when the CFO came and told me not to tell the truth to the auditors, I thought it was a good time to leave the business, so hmm. what we did. But it was an interesting exercise because you learn a lot when things are in trouble. Yeah. You, you know, I've always said you don't learn so much when things are going well because when all boats are rising, the tide is rising, everybody does well, you think you're smart and smarter than everybody else, and uh, you don't learn a lot. But boy, when it's a mess, and this company was a mess, uh, you learn a lot real fast. So I learned a lot about how to motivate a sales force, a lot about how to you know, how to just deal with all kinds of problems in a very short period of time, and quite a little bit about how to manage from the gentleman I work with, as well as a few other people. Because when you're all hunkered down, and it's always a, almost a battle, you know, everybody learns from each other. And right. It was quite an experience. But I came out of there, moved back to Boston, where my wife had grown up, and she had decided that she'd had enough of living down south for a while. And so we went back and also felt like there might have been more opportunity and decided that being an entrepreneur was something I wanted to try. Uh, obviously, I didn't have any money, and I didn't really have any great experience, but I went about trying to structure my life to find good opportunity 
And a part of that was I wound up doing some business consulting, and part of it was I wound up teaching at Harvard Business School for a while. But all of that was just to put me in a position to look for and find the right opportunity. And just through that, I met a gentleman by the name of Ben Ryan. Ben today is one of the largest shareholders still, uh, Ben, through through his investment company called Schooner Capital of Iron Mountain. And I joined Ben uh, at Iron Mountain. It was a $3 million revenue business. I joined him in return for a small piece of the equity and, and, and the opportunity to earn more, and you know, sort of the, that's sort of the rest of his history. That was 1981. In fact, it was uh, about Dece- November, December 1981. And uh, in fact, it was December, come to think of it, because my second son was born about four or five days before I joined the company. Wow. So, you know, I joined it with $3 million in revenue. Uh, you know, thank goodness Ben get he gave me an airline ticket to fly out to upstate New York where the operations were at the time because when he told me, he, he described Iron Mountain, he described it as, as this business that stored records underground. Well, back in 1981, when somebody said you stored records, they you know they thought about these round things that go around with a needle right. on it and make music. Right. And nobody really understood corporate records. I certainly didn't, you know. I'd been to Harvard Business School. I'd taught at Harvard Business School and the whole Whoever thought about corporate records and corporate information back then, it just was not something you know, people thought, thought about or anything else. So what happened when you, you actually arrived at, at Iron Mountain the very first time after Vin Ryan had encouraged you to come and you visited? Was was that kind of a significant experience when you first saw the way records were kept in that? T- tell me a little bit about how that all unfolded. Well, when I, when I went around uh, one of the original underground sites in upstate New York, what I was able to see was, you know, it's like a small city underground with all, all these buildings. And in that in those days, a lot of the companies, uh, you know, literally had their brands out on the outside of the buildings. They'd have an entire building of their records. Right. And you look around and you'd see these major corporate brands, most of which were in New York and Connecticut, storing records in it. And when you, you know, when they'd tour me through and you'd look, you'd realize that, uh, you know, I came to realize this was a serious and interesting business. And yeah. it was a business that, this was a period of the mini computer revolution headed towards the PC. It was a period of high technological evolution and short product cycles, which we've got nothing but short in the technology space. And I looked at this and said, this is pretty interesting. There are serious companies that are clearly spending uh, a lot of money to do this. I can understand why it's important to them. And I realized it was a company with a very long product cycle, which I thought was pretty exciting since I didn't have the product innovation skills. Hmm at the time that one would need to, uh, you know, to go into the technology business. So right. when you added it all up, I said, this made a lot of sense. Hmm. So you arrive officially at Iron Mountain as as the president, right? Yeah, you know, I started at the top, stay at the top. I mean, that's an awful thing to say, but that's, you know, really where it worked. It was a $3 million business. At the time, was losing money a little bit. And, you know, so I, I came in to sort of clean it up. It had a lot of structural legal, structural uh, tax issues that had to be dealt with and you know, financing issues. Uh, as, you, as everybody in the industry knows, this business consumes capital while, while it's in growth phase. And that's clearly, if you, you follow Iron Mountain, you follow any of the companies with public uh, records out there, the business, for most of the time I operated, it consumed a lot of capital because mm. you have to invest the capital, continue outfitting facilities, and right. so forth. But once you hit a certain point, it also gushes a lot of cash, and that's where our mountain is today. Yeah. You know, it's, it's hit that inflection point, and that changes a lot of things. But back in the early years in the records business, uh, it was
with a business that consumed a lot of capital, one that was not well understood about capital markets, and therefore raising capital was one of the most difficult things, uh, frankly, to make the business work. So let's say you're around, whether it be six months or a year or two years, and you've done some of the, the initial cleanup that you talked about. Did you start really seeing, and at that point, having a vision for what this could be and and where you could go with this? Tell me a little bit about your initial strategy, maybe once you got settled, and the focus that you took for those initial years besides sort of cleaning up those legal and tax implications. Well, I'd like to tell you that I looked in and I was a genius and I saw this wonderful vision <laughs> of information growth in a large multi-billion dollar company, but I'd be lying to you. Right. Yeah, I happen to believe there are very few people that uh, I can tell you all kinds of revisionist history stories, but that's looking backwards. Look, the truth is, and I've always learned and believed this, that you have to be successful in business. As I say, you have to be in swimming in the stream. And if you're swimming in the stream and you're smart, you can spot opportunities and you can spot near-term ones and you can spot mid-term ones. And over time, you can spot even long-term ones, but that's what experience brings. If you're on the outside looking in, it's, it's awful hard to really spot things. And so part of what I had been looking for was to get into a stream and then you can go look for opportunities. Yeah. And I think I got lucky by getting into the information business and the information storage business in its very, very early years, right. which it's, it's had and still has some interesting opportunities, but it had an enormous outsourcing wave that this just created tremendous opportunities. But no, we didn't. I didn't see that that far back. What I did see was a great fiduciary responsibility that we were really trusted by these companies to store the information, and that brought a lot of obligations, and I thought that was something we could build on, and we certainly have tried and, and helped build on that. But, no, it was very hard to see the information revolution. When I joined Iron Mountain, it was just beginning, uh, and the business that was booming at that time were computer tape storage. You know, the paper business actually had not really started to outsource hmm. at a super-fast pace. That came probably in the, within about five to seven years later where you could really see the fact the pace of the outsourcing and paper business start up. Hmm. But yeah, I'd like to say that we had all this, this wonderful vision, but it just didn't true. It, you know, every, every step along the way, we had stepped back and said, what is the next three years? What is the next five years? What is the next 10 years bring? With some blurriness, the further out you go, you can get to see uh, a good sense of what it will bring, but not in the early years. It, the industries and the businesses really had not formed. The market really hadn't formed itself. Right. So looking back at the history of Iron Mountain, it seems to me that the Bell and Howell acquisition was a pretty major early milestone for you. So how did that deal change you, Iron Mountain, and even the industry at that point? Well, up until then, we believed and everybody else believed that the records business was totally local business, hmm. that there was only one market. It was only a market within about 30 to 40 miles of center city of a, of a major city. Right. And the truth is, when we bought Bell and & Howell, and there's lots of stories about how we were able to do it, but it was a big leverage buyout, and we used a lot of leverage. And as I mentioned earlier, when I first joined the business, one of the biggest problems of the industry is the financial community, the capital markets, be it the banks and wealth, had no understanding of the industry and had no interest in, in providing capital to it, yet it's a highly capital-intensive business, which which is a real problem. Right. And one of the things I think that we have we did well, and I guess I can take some credit for it, but uh, I didn't do it all by myself, just like I didn't do anything by myself, was we realized that getting the capital markets to understand the company and be able to provide sources of capital to us and the entire industry 
was going to be a key to making it into a real business. And mm. so we went about doing a lot of stuff. From almost the first day I joined the company, it seemed like I had to spend a lot of time in those kinds of issues. And the Bell Howell acquisition was no uh, difference. I mean, I jokingly say, but it's basically true, that it was a $75 million acquisition and we borrowed $76 million. <laughs> Uh, and we stuck our neck out. We literally bought it, kept it separate from Iron Mountain itself in separate pockets, just in case we were wrong. We wouldn't, you know, lose one uh, for the risk we were taking on the other. We might, we'd lose a lot of our own money, and money would you know, borrow and everything else. But, but then the strategy when we bought it, it was actually sell off a lot of the smaller cities because Bell and Howell had been on on a tear to go out and buy companies a little bit and try to build a national footprint. Oh, okay. But as I said, we believed that being national had no real advantage and the customers didn't care. And therefore, we bought it for its mainly its California presence, which was where it was making all its money, and it was losing money everywhere else. But when we got inside, we found two phenomena. One is that the, the smaller non-California cities were growing really fast, and they were going to break even very quickly, and we could see ways to get them to break even very quickly, push them a little bit. And second was that you know, our customers started saying, oh, if you can service us in this city and that city, we're interested. And suddenly we could see the reason there had not been a national market is there had not been a national opportunity. No, there was no alternative. The customers couldn't think in that way. Hmm. And so Bell and Howell allowed us to do, and, it, and within about 18 months, we got it all put together, and we combined the two companies. We refinanced it. Uh, we did a lot of things very quickly because we had to change our strategy. Part of the strategy, I said, was to go in and sell down assets and pay off some of that high debt real fast. Right. But as soon as we got in, we realized that, no, it was probably smarter to go raise more capital in a different way and put it all together and take advantage of that national trend. And that was, again, good serendipity, I think, good execution. Well, we didn't see it from the outside. It's only after you get in there that we, we really came to that conclusion. But it sounds to me like what you just said is that there were some panicky moments during that whole process. Oh, I've always been a few higher wire acts, you know? Yeah. You don't get anywhere without taking risks. There's no such thing as, you know, doing really well in life if you're not willing to take some risk. And we had taken a few from here from different points in time. You just have to calibrate them and try to manage them carefully. Right. So 1996 then, from the time that Bell and Howell acquisition and what you just talked about really stabilizing that acquisition, there was some in the interim there. But it seems that in 96, uh, February of 96, uh, you go public, giving you really that massive influx of capital you needed to go into a pretty aggressive acquisition and expansion focus. What was the opportunity you now saw in the market and industry and what really was the strategy you were engaging at that point? What were you thinking uh, based on getting uh, going public, and then wh- where were you going after that? What was the big dream and vision at that point? Well, from November of 88, when we closed Bell and Howell, to about February of 96, in fact, to, to really about early 95, which was when we started thinking about going public, yeah. we focused the whole business on you know cleaning up Bell and Howell, integrating all of it, turning into a national business, you know, one set of technology, and growing internally. We grew the business internally over the time period, I think about 12% of the revenue and cash flow, about 15%, tuning margin and just running the business better. Right. And when we got through, we had a pretty much a national footprint and there was really no real contender to that, except that uh, at that time, Pierce Leahy, during the interim there, uh, Pierce Business Archives and Leahy Business Archives came together and right. went about trying to do the same thing. 
And then you had, uh, it was not branded early on, Recall. It was branded Rambles, I believe, Rambles Information Management, and they rebranded Recalls. But Rambles came up from Australia, a big public company with well-heeled, lots of lots of capital. Yeah. And really took a pretty aggressive approach towards the market to try to consolidate the, the U.S. market. And their timing was pretty good. If you study markets, you realize that they usually get started in a very fragmented way, as the records business has. And then they will consolidate for efficiency. And there's a lot of reasons why that happens. It happens almost in every market. And so it's a question of whether you are going to, if you're going to sell into that trend or if you're going to buy in that trend, which you're going to try to be a leading consolidator, or are you going to try to go ahead and liquidate into that consolidation wave? Because during the consolidation wave is when the value of your businesses will grow the fastest and be the highest. Right. And Bramble's really got started, and frankly, they didn't execute it particularly well, but they got the industry going. They got a lot of first-generation entrepreneurs in the business to look around and say, for the first time in their careers, they had good liquidation opportunities. They could capitalize on, say, 20 years' worth of work in their career and turn it to cash and, and look to uh, doing something else or looking on to another to retirement or whatever they wanted to do. And up until then that opportunity really hadn't existed because nobody was out buying records businesses or putting capital in the industry. Right. And when Bramble started that, like I said, he got people doing, and you need somebody to light the fuse, and they lit the fuse, so they bought a few. And it was real clear that there were others who would be interested in the right transaction, the right valuation. And so Iron Mountain was still privately owned at the time, and frankly, it was three of us that owned it, our CFO at the time, myself, and Spinner Capital and Ben. And we spent quite a bit of time. We talked to various capital sources and looked at our alternatives and went through our models and our forecasts and, and went through the, the logic of, do we want to be a seller? You know, we've got a good-sized business now in the market. We're out there, and you've got a major player coming in wanting to put capital in. One of the alternatives you could sell to them. And do you want to be a seller, or do you want to raise capital and see if you can't build the leading consolidator? And we spent enough time and said, no, let's... let's uh, Let's see if we can raise the capital in the public markets, because if you're going to be a consolidator, you're going to need ready access to capital. You're going to need access to lots of capital right. in this business, and that means you're going to need a public currency. So we made that decision, and we actually went up and lined up two or three acquisitions, because at that time in 1996, the public equity markets were enamored with roll-ups. That was the uh, product at that moment uh, that the market was hot on and everything else, and so we went out and talked to various bankers and found one that was smart enough to understand this one-off business. And the difficult thing about going public is it goes back to the same thing. Capital markets never heard of records. A one-off business, if you look at the equity markets, they they like to compare one company to others right. from a valuation perspective. And so people would look at it and say, it looks like an interesting business, but I don't know how to value it. And, of course, it was always, didn't paper already go away? Isn't it going away? You know, the question I've been dealing with forever. Right. But we got it, we got it out. Uh, we didn't raise a lot of money on hindsight. I think we raised $38 million, something like that. And I'll never forget on the road shows, the, all the potential investors kept asking me, you sure you can, you know, you can back up this? You sure you can spend $38 million? Sounds like a lot of money compared to what we'd ever spent in the last five, seven years. And uh, wow. I said, sure, I think so, but I, we'll find out, won't we? And of course, the rest is history. We spent three, four billion dollars and it's been an interesting run. But that was uh, another one of those things that was a bit of a high wire. In those days, and it still is, the public markets open and close. 
But in this case, EBITDA was the metric we were using. There were almost no public companies at that stage talking about it, dealing with EBITDA. Really? Nope. And that was that has a lot to do with counting changes that occurred since then. Now it's pretty standard. Yeah. You hear everybody talking about earnings and EBITDA and everything else. But we were one of the first EBITDA stories. In fact, the only other industry out there was cable business, cable TV. It was selling, and, and again, they had four or five comps, and people were comfortable with it. Right. People were very nervous about an EBITDA story, a one-off, never heard of it story. And, you know, to raise $38 million, I bet we didn't have commitments for any more than about $40 billion. And typically, you'd want four to five to one commitments to what you actually raise. So right. we barely got it out. Oh, my goodness. But then you used that. You said you had two or three, and it seemed like from 96 into 2000, you you did a fair amount of acquisition then. But then 2000, the Pierce-Leahy deal happens, really brought the two largest industry players together at the time, maybe barring Brambles. And I suspect this topic might be an entire show to itself, but that deal changed the company and, to me, the record storage industry in a significant way. Can you tell me, in retrospect, the significance of that acquisition and the impact it then had on the rim industry and Iron Mountain as a whole? Well, we're sure, because what... What was happening, remember I said Brambles came in, was, was acquiring, and then we really st- started acquiring. And then Pierce Leahy uh, first raised some public debt, and then they eventually went public for public equity, but they raised public debt originally just to, to start to race. And as I like to describe it, and, and I've not described it for years when we're in the middle of it, we're in, a, we're in a sprint, we're in a race. And, you know, you can see the finish line, which is leadership, and leadership is very valuable uh, in every industry being number one, and mm-hmm. we ran hard for it. And, you know, you make mistakes and everything else, but if you slow down and you temper yourself, you won't make it to the end. Marathons, you have to temper yourself, and you got to pace yourself and everything else. But if you're going to run a sprint, you look at the goal line, and you run, and you fall over. You know, you just run hard. And that's basically what we did. We bought a company that, on average, every three weeks, eventually expanding that activity to five continents for 12 years straight. Wow. That's that's a lot of acquisition work, and we wow. built a really good acquisition machine. And Pierce Lay was doing similar, and they they were buying, and we were buying. And for a while, the industry was enjoying uh, the fact that you had two very big competitors acquiring and everything else, and they were sometimes enjoying the battle of one facing the other, and so forth. Pierce Lay he got to a point where there's a lot of complexity in use in, in your capital structure and a high capital business like this, but it really comes down to managing leverage in an appropriate way. And they got their leverage too high. That means they, they, they got their debt too high. And the rate at which you can buy companies has a lot to do with how much equity you got under your leverage and seeing it coming and understanding it. And they got in a position where they had to announce to the public markets that they were going to slow down and buying companies and digest what they bought because the debt had gotten too high. Hmm. That caused the stock to come down substantially, and that caused a lot of pressure since it was family-owned, a lot of pressure on people to make a change and created an opportunity for us to consider merging the business together, which we did. And as you know, that took number one and number two yeah, and put them together. It solidified our market leadership position, I would say, forever. Yeah. And basically North America and both them and we had already started expanding in Europe and Latin America. So it gave us good head starts in those markets. And at that time, Hayes was the biggest player in Europe uh, out of the UK. Right, right. Uh, and then both Pierce Leahy and our mountains had been had made footholds over there. So, you know, and as you know, we went forward later and eventually bought Hayes over there. 
which solidified our leadership in all of Europe as well as we'd already solidified in North America. Yeah. The growth of, you know, really the outcome of that solid leadership position really then forced you, I think, in, in some way to be kind of always on the cutting edge of what was going on and almost a continual evolution, not just from the acquisitions, but the expansion into data protection and the work you did there, all the expansions into digital. How really did Iron Mountain's activity reflect the evolution of the marketplace issues, trends, and demands that were happening because of that global leadership position? Well, one of our key strategies is we speak internally to ourselves, is I like the voice of just go where our customers need us. And that, that had a lot to do with the geographic expansion and still does, by the way. We're still, you know, Iron Mountain bought 17 companies last year. Right. People think we're not buying as much. And we and there was a period, as you know, as I, I tried to retire about five right. years ago, something like that. And then I came back out of semi-retirement two years ago. But there was a period which we did slow down. In fact, basically didn't buy anybody in North America. But we're buying everywhere, and the company's buying everywhere now. But there's a lot of reasons we can talk about later why. But part of that strategy is to go where our customers need us. And in this case, uh, we're buying internationally a lot also. Right. Now that we saw a national market created because of the opportunity, we're starting to see a global market being created because we're creating that opportunity for customers to think about it in that way. And we extend that not just to geography, the concept to be where our customers need us, but the concept is to what services do they want us to provide to them. Right. That's one of the reasons we went to shredding and obviously the backup tape business or the data protection business. But it also, you know, we took a, a detour for a while and put, put money in the online storage, which uh, that was during the Internet bubble. And uh, we, we built up, uh, actually, we were one of the largest B2B, outside of Salesforce.com, B2B service providers. We had about a quarter billion dollar business in services in, in the digital space that we, when I came back two years ago, we spun off. We sold it to Autonomy. Right. But, and, you know, we learned a lot in doing that. First is we learned we could sell it. We learned it was a big capital game, but we also learned that developing software technology itself is a different, a very different skill set and cultural skill set than running a good service business, and that you really struggle to amortize the R&D development of software across a service platform where it's annuity-based. Right. And to be successful, you have to be able to sell it as a license, and the difference being when you sell it as a license, you effectively... You know, the customer effectively pays for all the capital costs of the hardware and the setup, and they pay you up front for the intellectual property piece that you developed, and then you get a maintenance fee off them. If you sell it as a service, you have to put all that capital cost out hmm. and rent it to them on a monthly basis, and you that doesn't generate enough return to pay for the reinvestment in the technology. So we did all that. We actually turned it to profitable and free cash flow positive, then the recession of 2007-8 came, and that business actually, particularly on the license side, got hit harder than our storage, than our physical business. Right. And once you get that trend coming, you know, you're having trouble in one business and the other. We had some activist shareholders who were unhappy, and one thing led to the other. We stepped back and did a strategic review and said, look, uh, this digital business is good for our customers, but we're going to have to go at it a different way. And... We saw, again, we went out in that market and said, should we buy our way into it? And what we saw were craziness going on, people paying five, six times revenue for companies that had no profits. 
and frankly, trying to value software service companies where they do have to put their capital in the same way that value pure licensed software companies, which makes no sense. So what we had was a very frothy market, and we decided if you're going to be in a frothy market, you, you better not be a big buyer because you're just going to destroy 10 or 15 years' worth of shareholder value with one or two transactions. Right. So we decided uh, if we're in a frothy market, we ought to be a seller. Yeah. So we sold the business, and, and the rest is history there. We, you know, and when I announced the sell, and it's still true, we actually do still do online services. Uh, we still run backup <laughs> for people. We still yep. sell backup. Uh, Ryan Mountain still does. I shouldn't say we. I don't work there anymore. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, and and actually, we have not has some other things in the hopper that are kind of interesting uh, in in that space in the future. And along the way, we built up a document management solutions business scanning and other related BPO businesses, which in North America, you know, we, we built a, a decent business here. We're still working on getting the margins where they need to be, but I think we're on a path to do that. But we actually do better in that space than particularly emerging markets around the world, Latin America, India, Russia, you know, Ukraine, a lot of the places in Eastern Europe and stuff where we do, we do some phenomenal things for customers that, you know, we don't do in, in North America. Yeah. And one of the things, one of the opportunities to see if we either could do them here or maybe the market doesn't exist here. That's something to be figured out. Hmm. So we, you know, we have spent a lot of time looking with customers and talking to customers and trying to find find problems that are big enough that they want to pay us to solve. And then that goes into our filter and our screening. We try to figure out if it makes sense or not. Yeah. I, I, I hate to do this, but I got to step in and say you've got to come back for next week's show to get the rest of this amazing interview with uh, Richard Reese. If you want to be notified when the show will be live, just place your name in the subscribe box on the right side of the RimProReport.com website. We'll email you the details of every show, but specifically the one next week. Thanks to Richard for taking the time he dedicated to sharing his story with us. Next week is going to be incredible. I know the rest of the story already because the interview's done, and Richard and I will talk a lot about what's happening in the industry, what he sees in his crystal ball, and a whole lot more. Thanks again for joining us and a special thanks to O'Neill Software, our exclusive show sponsor. O'Neill has been in the game just about as long as Richard Reese has. In fact, it was 30 years ago their software became the number one and first commercially available software for the record storage industry. That spirit of innovation and leadership continues to this day. Check them out yourself at O'NeillSoft.com. We'll be back next week with round two of the interview. Have a great one. We are out of here. Thanks for joining us on the Rim Pro Report with Tom Adams. If you enjoyed the show, please tell others. Our website is www.rimproreport.com. This broadcast is produced and hosted by Flourish Press Inc. Join us again soon.